Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Wes Ely, a critical care physician deeply embedded into researching how intensive care unit stays can improve health with fewer side effects. He explores this topic in his research into ICU delirium in a book being released September 7th of this year by Simon & Schuster called Every Deep Drawn Breath, in which he uses stories and research results to explore healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. And Dr. Ely is a big proponent of fighting ICU delirium, which is something that we learned about firsthand in uh, episode 205 when we had a patient and a, a mutual friend of ours who survived COVID, but suffered a lot of side effects. Even though he, he survived, he was in the ICU and intubated for weeks and weeks. And having this ICU delirium and other side effects from ICU care, that was something that was not really on my radar before we started talking to him. No, nor mine, but I think our listeners are going to learn quite a bit from Wes because he's at the forefront uh, of researching this that affects upwards of 70% of ICU patients. So, Andrew, why why is the topic of intensive care units important for our listeners to know about? Well, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is we all know someone who's been in the ICU, and if, if we haven't had to go through that yet, statistically, all of us will at some time. Um, not only personally, on, on average, statistically, most of us will be in the ICU more than once in our life. And then I did apart, not know that. <laughs> apart from that, you know, people we, we know and love. And I think most of our listeners have probably already had that experience of, of loving someone who has been in the ICU. Wow. What, what age do people typically end up in the ICU for the first time? You know that I guess I I don't know the exact numbers on that, but traditionally we think of older folks. Um, there's definitely pediatric ICU visits though as well, unfortunately related to to accidents and whatnot. I I was kind of thinking to help set the table uh, for Wes when he comes on to talk just briefly about what what it takes to get to the ICU. I think uh, a lot of people recognize what it looks like. You see it on television, but how do doctors? And nurses decide when somebody requires ICU level care. Yeah, because patients don't show up at a hospital saying, hey, let me in your ICU. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it, it, kind of as a joke, I mean, you can follow the signs in the hallway, but to get there medically, um, <laughs> there's a few things that are, are kind of one-way trips. And what are so, the big ones, Andrew? I like to think of it kind of from the different organ systems. And in, in emergency medicine, we think airway first. So people with threatened airway, either from trauma, trouble, trouble breathing, or may have trouble continuing to breathe. It could be from anaphylaxis or anything that would cause difficulty breathing. Um, so airway is A, B is breathing, C is circulation. Anybody with circulatory problems, either from, that could be a pulmonary embolus, that would be breathing and circulation, or cardiac issues such as a heart attack would be a common reason to land many people in the ICU. Um, Trauma is another common reason. And then obviously in the time of COVID, we're thinking of infections, uh, terrible infections, especially respiratory infections, and then many neurologic things, either from an accident, if somebody got in a car accident, or if they had a, a stroke and they were really neurologically compromised at that time, frequently they'd end up in the ICU for those reasons. What are some of the fascinating things that you encountered? You spent far more time in an ICU than I did in my training. You know, the the ICU is an interesting place because so often the patients receive similar treatments and and it's, it's easy. I think, especially reflecting on my time as a med student, you you think that everybody just kind of gets the same thing. And I, I want to kind of ask Wes about that because I know that's one of the things he's fighting, but so many people end up on a ventilator or a breathing machine. And then so many people also end up sedated, which is a big thing that, that Wes will be talking to us about. And so frequently you're going from room to room and everybody got here for different reasons, but they're all receiving very similar treatment, um, namely supporting the body with its functions that it's failing in so that the body can heal itself. Or if it's an infection, we have time to treat it with antibiotics or other treatments. 
but supporting the heart and the lungs so that the body can heal. There, there was actually a kind of a neat scoring system that I wanted to share with our listeners. We use this a lot in the hospital, but I suspect many of our listeners are not familiar with it. It's called the MUSE, M-E-W-S. It's the Modified Early Warning Score. And so nursing, nursing folks will be very familiar with this and uh, many medical folks, clinicians as well, because we'll get these calls at, at 2 a.m. and say, oh, the patient's got a MUSE score of a four. Should we do something? But this is one of the ways that, you know, maybe a person comes to the hospital with a mild illness. This is how we decide when they go from a regular hospital bed to an ICU bed. And the scoring system, it's, it's pretty simple. It, it includes things like respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, the heartbeat, blood pressure, temperature, and consciousness level. And those have a scoring system between zero and three points. And if you add up the points, when people score a certain number of points, like for example, if they score two points, there's an 8% chance of ICU admission or death within 60 days. Usually we'll get a phone call if the patient scores three or four points. That means there's a, a almost 13% chance of ICU admission or death. And then if a patient ever scores six or more points, then they're into the 30% chance of death or ICU admission within 60 days. So as the nursing staff, you know, they're at the bedside 24-7, they're observing the patient when they see changes in these vital signs that you know, people always ask, why, why do we care about watching the heartbeat constantly or the blood pressure constantly or urine output, things like that. Whenever there's a change in these things that we are monitoring so closely, that suggests to the medical staff that, okay, the patient's condition actually might be changing and it's time to bring them to a higher level of care, time to go to the ICU. That's a great introduction. So we'll see how Wes approaches this. Uh, before we get to our trivia question, though, we want to plug our 2021 annual conference. Yeah, we, we want to invite everybody listening today to the 2021 Annual Education Conference of the CMA. Because we think that many of our medical colleagues have overdosed on online and virtual meetings and are aching to reconnect in person. Yeah, this is, this is a good place to get back to seeing all of your friends in the CMA. And this year's topic is the joy of medicine. The conference will be held at the family-friendly Carib Royale Resort in sunny Orlando, Florida, October 7 through 9. And I'm really excited because this hotel, all the rooms are sweet. So it's great for families, plenty of activities as well for the whole family. Our keynote speaker will be former Swiss guard and now dean of the business school at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Mario Ensler. He's going to use his incredibly humorous wit and deep insights to share stories about the joy of his former boss, St. John Paul II. I guarantee you there's going to be so many speakers that you are going to love to hear, and you're going to probably meet new speakers that you, you didn't even know you missed so far. But this this conference, you know, being <laughs> for the joy of, of medicine, it's geared especially for physicians, nurses, and students, and other professionals who kind of sense a loss of joy in their work um, and looking for ways to kind of rekindle that joy. That's our goal. And even if you don't experience a deficit of joy in your life, getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country will certainly energize you. And we actually believe so strongly that medical professionals will enjoy the faith, fellowship, and formation that the conference will provide that, for the first time, the CMA is offering a type of money-back guarantee. That's right. For anyone attending this 90th annual CMA conference for the first time, the CMA is offering a 90% refund of the registration fee if the attendee does not think they grew in faith, fellowship, or formation after attending. That's pretty simple. Many people have gotten hooked on the CMA after attending just one annual conference. In fact, it's the number one reason that people give for joining the CMA. It's a great experience. And if you're thinking about attending, please go to the CMA website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And now to our patented medical trivia question of the day, the category, how many beds? According to a 2021 report of the American Hospital Association, the United States has over 5,100 community hospitals. This excludes federal hospitals and psychiatric hospitals. So considering these over 5,000 hospitals, it's a two-part question. A, how many intensive care unit beds are there in these 5,000 hospitals? And B, what percentage of total beds are intensive care unit beds? As usual, you'll have to wait till the end of the show to get the answer. And we'll be back with our guest, Dr. Wes Ely, after the break here on Dr. Doctor. 
Welcome to our interview today with Dr. Wes Ely about his book that's coming out September 7th, Every Deep Drawn Breath. Uh, Wes is a pulmonologist, critical care doctor at both Vanderbilt University Medical Center and the Veterans Administration Hospital there in Nashville. He received his MD and Master's of Public Health degrees at Tulane down in New Orleans. He's uh, got an endowed chair in medicine at uh, Vanderbilt. He's also a physician scientist. He's at the forefront of research into ICU delirium. He's going to talk a great deal about that. But his book, the subtitle is A Critical Care Doctor on Healing, Recovery, and Transforming Medicine in the ICU. He's actually president of the Catholic Medical Association Guild in Nashville, the only guild to win the Guild of the Year Award twice. And he just received for his book a starred review from Publishers Weekly. Wes, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much, Dr. McGovern. It's my privilege to be here. You, you, you know, Wes, what is it that makes an ICU something that's so important that our listeners should learn about it today? Because it's where people go when their life is so threatened that they can't stay alive without special help. But most importantly, when you just said what makes an ICU important, it's because what we're doing is transforming it into a place that we actually do see you. We see all of you. And I want us to, I want our patients to know and their families to know that when you come into my ICU, I will see all of you. And I'm talking about mind, body, and spirit. I remember, Wes, we had you on uh, briefly a few years ago, and you taught me something I've never forgotten. You said that so often the residents and students will ask, um, what's the matter with the patient? And you teach them to ask what matters to the patient. Do you still do that? Absolutely. That switch of a preposition from what's the matter with to what matters to changes our entire focus. And it's incumbent upon us as healthcare providers who are following a vocation, not a job, but a vocation, a calling that we are there to serve them. How do we do that, Tom, if we don't actually ask them what matters to them and find out what their their main foci in life is all about? Now, Wes, this seems like a departure from a lot of the ICUs I've been in. When did this when did this change, or is this not the case everywhere? I don't think it's the case everywhere, but I think it was usual care, standard care in the 90s and early 2000s that most patients in the ICU were just deeply sedated in a coma, tied down, and we basically had put people who in life were in vivid color, with hobbies and loves and likes and dislikes. And we put them through what I call an ICU depersonalization chamber. And as they came (laughs) into that ICU, they went from color and vivid, vibrant, noisy human beings into grayed out human beings who were all looking the same, quiet, sedated, and heavily comatose in that tied down bed. And that was not a way to take care of people in a dignified manner. And so for the past 20 to 25 years, we've been trying to undo that with good, heavy science, real research, and a lot of personal touch. So you've just mentioned one of two big trends I want to talk about in ICU, sedation and ventilators. Those are two things that I think the average person thinks about when they picture an ICU. So since you already brought up sedation, talk about the trend. When did the trend towards sedation begin in ICUs? And when did people start to think this might not be such a good idea? Wonderful question. Basically, after the polio epidemics in uh, in Scandinavia, people started having the ability to put people on mechanical ventilation. And then across the United States, in some early ICUs back in the late 60s, early 1970s. So over 50 years ago is when this all started. And the better and better we got at keeping people alive on the ventilator, the deeper and deeper the sedation got. So that we would say, hey, we're in charge of this body now. We'll wake them back up later and we'll just we'll just control the entire body and do whatever it is we want to do to that person, you know, with sedation and coma during the time that we are, quote, you know, letting them get through this life threatening illness. So that by the time you got into the 1990s, it was usual care for everybody to kind of look like they were dead, except for the monitors that told you otherwise. And it was at the in the 90s when I started seeing patients back in the clinic as a young doctor and thinking, 
oh my gosh, I thought they'd come in here happy to see me. And oh, thank you, Dr. Ely. Instead, they're wheeling in in a wheelchair, life totally dismantled, demented, unable to walk, unable to do their job, unable to you know carry on as the matriarch or patriarch of their family. And I said, wow, I'm guilty. I have, uh, I have to reckon with the fact that I have hurt somebody and, and, and maybe ruined their life. And then I carried around a lot of guilt and shame for that, those years in the nineties to try and figure out what, what do I need to do here to be a, to be a better doctor, to actually take care of these people, not just during their illness, but help them get back to who they were beforehand. You know, one, one of the things with the ICU, it, it comes up in primary care a lot talking about advanced directives. And the thing that I hear from everybody is that, well, I guess I wouldn't mind uh, being full code, being on a ventilator. As long as it's just for a minute, I just bounce right up, go back home on the weekend. Um, what what percent of people in your experience leave the ICU like they came in or go back to normal? Oh, uh, less than half. So more than half of people end up acquiring a set of new diseases that we refer to under the umbrella term PICS, post-intensive care syndrome or PICS. And so PICS is, is, the, is the term for this constellation of diseases, which are neck up brain problems like dementia, mental health problems like PTSD and depression, and then neck down, profound muscle and nerve disease that actually makes people unable to walk up a flight of stairs or maybe even one step into their house. And over 50% of people have some constellation of these problems. Uh, probably it's only about 30 to 40% of people who leave the ICU unscathed by some form of acquired disease. My goodness. See, so that's that's a sobering thing, I think, when a lot of people, you see it on TV and, you know, they've done they've done studies about people's perceptions of like CPR and stuff and everybody bounces back up. But <laughs> in real life, it doesn't sound like that's the case. What you're describing though, with your strategy and combating the ICU delirium, it sounds like you have an antidote for some of these problems. Well, that's what we've been working on. And I think the answer to that is yes, we do. We, through research that started around 1999, so 23 years ago, over the last two, two and a half decades, we have been enrolling thousands and thousands of patients into a sequence of randomized controlled trials and cohort studies. And we have developed a program called the ABCDEF bundle, or the, this is six letters. I just abbreviated A2F, like the letter A, number two, sure. F bundle. And this A2F bundle is a safety checklist that like your pilot would use trying to fly an airplane from LA to New York. And what we do in the ICU is we run the patients through this safety checklist every single day and say, okay, are we doing a good enough job for Bobby or Johnny or Sally? And if we aren't doing, if we're doing the AB part right, but not the CD part right, let's get better. And what we want to see is 80% plus compliance for each of these six components of this safety checklist. And what we've proven in tens of thousands of patients now is that the higher our compliance is with the A2F bundle, the better survival is, the shorter time is in the ICU and in the hospital, the less ICU bounce backs there are, and people actually leave and go home rather than to nursing homes and rehab facilities. So that's a, that's a big payoff for trying to do a better job. And it's evidence-based and scientifically founded. So Wes, what are some of the key myths that you have had to um, debunk or go up against that were you know accepted dogma in ICUs that you find are not the dogma you thought they were? Well, you asked about sedation earlier, and one of the right. accepted myths was that if somebody comes in with a pneumonia and I put them on a ventilator, in order to help them tolerate that ventilator, I can give them not just a little sedation, but I can just pummel their brain with sedatives, get them all the way down to the coma, essentially make them remember nothing, and that that is safe. And I don't know why we ever thought that was safe, but we really did. I mean, we thought that that was fine. That, that you know, so I, guess, I think we thought that since we were doing it, it was okay. And that it wasn't the original disease process. But what we now know without a shadow of a doubt is that that, in, that actually instigates a new form of brain disease. And when that, you know, those drugs are, are extremely robust and profoundly uh, 
strong. And when you give them truckloads of these sedatives and not just for a 30 minute procedure, but for five or six days, that builds up in the brain, uh, contributes along with the disease they've already got, which is things like COVID, COVID pneumonia and sepsis, thickening of the blood, lack of oxygen, all that stuff together compounds to actually help the person, not help, to cause a, a, a delirious state during the ICU which every day of delirium actually is contributing to the acquisition of millions and millions of lost neurons and actual brain atrophy. Like, you know, if your arm was in a cast, you'd lose size of your bicep Well, you're losing size of your brain during that ICU stay. And months and years later, your brain isn't going to be as sharp as it was. So Wes, how much does this parallel the opioid epidemic? Did this idea of giving all the sedation parallel giving patients chronic pain meds as opiates? We were first. (laughs) That's kind of an embarrassing (laughs) thing to be first at. We were first. The ICU was way before the opioid epidemic. We were doing this to people back in the 90s, thinking it was okay. It wasn't okay. And it took a lot of science to prove to others that what we were doing wasn't safe. And people didn't believe it. They thought, you know, I've done this for 20 years. I've got gray hair. How much damage could I have done? But the reason they didn't know was because ICU doctors don't typically follow their patients in the clinic. So the clinic doctors were seeing these people come out of the ICU and they just thought, holy H-E double hockey sticks. You are not the same person you used to be, but I guess that's what happens. And they didn't report back to the ICU doctor, the ICU doctor. Ah. So there was this siloing of follow-up and that yes. was really a disaster for the for the patient. My goodness, yeah, I I recall even sometimes like in my training, which was not not even too long ago, the thought was is if someone was agitated, the answer was always more sedation. We don't want them to remember this. They're clearly scared. They're they're trying to breathe instead of letting the machine do the work. Put them to sleep. Let them wake up when they're better. But it turns out that that's not the case. Andrew, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. You know. When I was a young, non-gray-haired doctor, that's what I thought. They're agitated. The nurse would say to me, doctor, we need some more benzodiazepines, lorazepam, whatever. And I would say, okay, fine. The nurse knows better. I don't want to get in the way of the nurse. And it wasn't on the nurse in terms of a fault or anything, but they were taught also that agitation on a ventilator lets sedate them. Now, you know what I do differently? If they're on a ventilator agitated now, I say, okay, good. Then they want to get out of the bed. Let's get them out of the bed. So instead of I get them out of the bed and think about just just for a moment, just put yourself in a bed for three days. Okay. How would you feel if you had not moved in three days? You'd be like pulling at the, at the lines and wanting to get out. So instead of sedating them back into this la la land, uh, into the stone age, I say, Oh, let's let them use their muscles. They're itching to get out. Let's get a physical therapist, a nurse, a family member, put them on the side of their bed, stand them up, let them use gravity and their own muscles get them exhausted and then put them back in the bed. And guess what? They'll fall asleep naturally instead of via chemical uh, restraints. And that natural sleep is so much better for them because it gets them into REM, which is healthy for the brain versus the drugs, which are actually slow wave sleep or REM suppressive. So they actually look like they're asleep, but they're getting no healthy restorative sleep at all. So this ICU delirium was talked about on an episode we did earlier with a friend of ours in his early 40s with no pre-existing conditions. He was on a COVID, uh, had COVID-19 pneumonia on event for six weeks. And he talks about constructing an alternate reality for his life that he cannot tell. He still has to ask his wife, did this just happen in my mind or did this really happen? How common is that kind of experience? In my book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, which by the way, I'm not doing this to try and make money for myself. Every penny from this book is going back into a fund for ICU survivors and their families. Every oh, Deep Drawn awesome. Breath was written for them. It's a, it's a book about them and their real stories. And so everything goes back to them. But in the book, there are numerous patients who tell their story and they all told me the same thing. These dreams of mine are not dreams. They're more real than my actual real life. And there are people, there's one person in the book named Anthony Russo who lives in California who had H1N1 pneumonia. And every day in the ICU, he had this dream that, well, this this hallucination that he was in a a game show and there were three women 
all with bags on their heads, and he had to decide which one to shoot. And then they would pull the hats off, and every single time he switched it around from one person to the other, but every time it was his own daughter. Oh, my word. And now, eight years later, he still has that every single night and wakes up in a cold sweat. And he says, Wes, it's more real to me than the things that happen to me during the day in my, in my job. Wow. So you're highly motivated to make sure this doesn't happen anymore if you can. Exactly. So I know that, that we are causing people to suffer. And while it may be fine that we help them to survive, they're not surviving in a way that makes them feel whole. And they don't feel uplifted and dignified when they're living out these heinous memories and such. Um, that's not the only reason to prevent it. The other reasons are that during their delirium, they are not fully present. Their, pus their personhood is impaired at that time. And I actually look at it as a form of injustice to them because they are trying to live the fullness of their relationships and the people that they love. And what's happening is that we are removing their ability to have that fullness of love and connection with the people that are the most important to them in their lives. And so I'm stripping them of some of the most important minutes and hours of their life during the delirium. They might die in the ICU, in which case I've, I've permanently removed that time. Or if they survive, that delirium converts into a cognitive impairment where they actually take reality, they take those delirious things and think that they were real, and then they have to go on suffering that way. Well, and you bring up a good point. I mean, in the ICU, this is this is for all the marbles. This is a big deal where a lot of these people, you know, unfortunately don't ever leave the ICU. And, you know, in, in the time of COVID that we've all been living through, there's so many of these people that do die alone in the hospital or they're deprived of the sacraments as, as they're approaching death. How do you balance that with this focus on trying to bring personhood back to these patients? To me, there's, there's no balance when the person is isolated and lonely and by themselves. That, that to me is, is a complete injustice. Um, I, compl I disagree with the lack of visitation policies. I've made myself a thorn in the side of more than one hospital about this. And, and I'm not doing it just to be a troublemaker. I really actually think it's anti-medicine. Yes. You know, medicine is supposed to be healing. And this is an anti-medicine when we don't have a loved one with their family. Now, at the beginning, when we did not have PPE and when we didn't know that PPE worked, th this was, I think, in a sense, okay to do. But we now know that PPE works. There's no shortage of PPE. And I see no reason why the family can't be in there. If I can be in there safe, so can they. Um, you know, vaccination and all that should be discussed and should be thought about. But in terms of just the ability to go into the room and hold the hands of a loved one, there's no reason not to do that anymore. Thank you. That's so good to hear because it, it just sounded wrong for doctors to let patients die alone. My mother-in-law died alone. It, it's just, yeah, it's personal, it's wrong, and I'm glad there are more doctors like you. Wes, we'll be back with you for our guests here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking today, Dr. Wes Ely, he's an ICU doctor in Nashville. And not only that, but he's an author now, and he's a very good storyteller from, from my experience. And I wonder if you could bring us into this, this second half of the interview with a couple of your ICU stories for our listeners. Absolutely. I, I love to do that. I think that we learn by story, and I think that it's healing to learn the true way that people's lives go. So I'll tell you one, I remember a patient not too long ago, and he's in the book, and he was transferred from a local prison with bad pneumonia on a ventilator, and the, the residents were presenting him to me on rounds, and I just was so distracted by the fact that he had this huge bright red set of shackles, cuffs on his leg, and I kept thinking, why, why is he cuffed? He's, he's on a ventilator. He can't harm anyone. It seems so undignified. And so at the end of their presentation, I kind of skipped the medical part. And I just said to the, to the guard, please undo these cuffs. And the guard said, no, I can't. And he recited the guy's inmate number rather than his name, which really got me upset. And I basically said, I consider this malpractice to have him cuffed up. And I wrote a, a, a prescription to the jail and talked to the warden that for medical healing purposes, he had to be uncuffed. And within an hour 
his his knees were pulled up to his chest and he looked at me with a nod and we got to know each other really well over the next couple of days as he eventually got off the ventilator and I got to know his sister and we moved, we approved for his sister to be brought into the room for visitation on her birthday. And, you know, nothing that I did in that ICU with antibiotics or a ventilator was nearly as important or as healing as showing that man that he and I are the same and that I'm not above him or below him, that we are two human beings who are sitting there trying to enter into the chaos of, of life and just want to <laughs> be with each other during that process. That's awesome. And Wes, you've got a story about couples. I mean, I've heard about putting, you know, preemie twins together, but uh, you did something at the other end of life. Yeah, there's, there's a, I remember uh, a couple who had been married for about 54, 55 years, and they came in with COVID. Both of them had COVID. And the man was put in a separate room from his wife, and he was getting profoundly delirious, and he was jumping out of the bed. And I thought, this guy's going to break his hip. And I said, and the nurses said the same thing. Why don't we just put them in the same room and attach their beds to one another? And we did. And these people were so cute and beautiful. And as soon as he was with his wife, they were holding hands and his delirium left, left completely. He was totally cognitively intact. And they sat in that bed next to one another throughout that time. And they lived and survived and went home. And it was so uplifting. I've stayed in touch with that couple. They're good friends of mine now. And uh, it's a really that was a really healing experience for me as a physician to watch them go through that together. Oh, you sorry. mentioned that stories are healing, Wes. And in your book, you have a unique appendix, some of the different books and poetry that helped you to heal when you saw these problems in the 90s. Tell us how that was important to you. Well, my father left us when I was little and my mom raised us as a single mom in a four room house in Louisiana. She made no money. She was an English teacher, directed Shakespeare, and also ran a youth shelter for kids. And our way of spending time together was reading poetry and reading books and writing. And that's what we did all the time. And my mom gave me that gift and that tool. So when I started suffering as a physician, knowing that I was hurting people in the ICU and, and not knowing how to undo that, I went back to books. I went back to read and uh, read about doctors like Dr. Zhivago and Dr. Tilson in East of Eden by Steinbeck. And that was healing for me. And in fact, the title, Every Deep Drawn Breath, comes from some of the most beautiful prose ever written, in my opinion, by an American author, Steinbeck in East of Eden. And it's about healing and the wonder of the human condition. And it's about, that chapter is about making mistakes. And he says, you know, every deep drawn breath is sweet. And it is. And that breath connects our brain and our and our lungs and our heart and that to me is the essence of life it's why it's the title of the book and that's what the book is about is about the the, the gut-wrenching reality of people's stories in their lives and how they work their way through those hard days hopefully either towards a better tomorrow or towards a comfortable dying process now it it sounds like this book is not only medical obviously there's kind of that might be the the canvas but it sounds like there's a lot of literal and literary aspects to this book as well. I hope that the reader finds that. I mean I, I there is there are books and literature and quotes all throughout the book and we always kind of come back to literature and uh and to me this is not really a medical book. I mean it tells the story of the evolution of the history of critical care through the eyes of patients. But it, it, to me, it, it's something that hopefully will bring healing to people who aren't even interested in an ICU, who have no clue about medicine and, and don't ever want and, and are maybe afraid of blood. I think this will be, is healing to the soul is the hope. Well, and, you know, as you're describing these stories and, you know, especially the interplay of literature in your own life and your own career, I mean, this, this is a Catholic medical show. I'm here in the Catholic faith and what you're describing, especially trying to look at these profoundly sick people that, to to Andrew Mullally, when I'm a medical student, it, they all look very similar, especially when they're sedated. How does your faith inform the way you practice medicine? My faith tells me that every human being from the beginning of their life to their natural dying process is the same in terms under the eyes of God and in the, in the, in the eyes of creation and that we all have an 
unmatched and priceless amount of dignity that we must uphold and that no amount of disease reduces our pricelessness by even an iota. You know, I remember a patient whose name is in the book and all these people's names are in the book. They're real names, real people. And he was a doctor who came in with COVID and he was breathing very strenuously on BiPAP with COVID. His pneumonia was getting worse. And I knelt down in front of him and said, you know, you are Catholic. What is it about your life that you hope to have happen? And he he told me that he wanted the Eucharist. And so the next morning when I went to mass, I got the Eucharist. I'm a, a, I'm a Eucharistic minister and I brought it to him in a pix, brought him the viaticum, which is food for the journey. And he was it was actually both scary and funny at the same time because he was so <laughs> emotional about receiving the Eucharist that he started just breathing very deeply and his sats were dropping. And I, I said, Giancarlo, you've got to slow down your breathing. I need you to code because I'm giving you the Eucharist. And, uh, it, it was really powerful. But but he said, this is this is my dream. This is the only thing that matters to me in my life right now is receiving this this Eucharist. And, and you know, the book is not a religious book. It's secular people and atheists and agnostics, I think, will find everything, hopefully, that they want to in this book. But on in this one story, I do reveal my faith. And um, I also talk about the fact that, that I'm an Al-Anon and that I go to this place that's called Al-Anon for healing as well. And that's because I've had a lot of addiction in my life, not me personally, but other people in my family were uh, addicted to different types of substances and non-substance types of addictions. And Al-Anon is for people who have other addicts in their life that they want to understand how to how to love, love those relationships and, and deal with them better. And so to me, these things kind of come together in my own personal healing process, the living a life of the 12 steps, having a having a sponsor and um, and then also my faith. It's an easy to read book, especially with all those stories and you revealing. It's like your own story is overarching as you intersect with the stories of other people. And I think that's why this should become a very popular book uh, among our readers. And it's available. Simon & Schuster is publishing it. And I guess what, September 7th, it'll be available on Amazon, right? Correct. Amazon and lots of places, Goodreads, local small bookstores. So you can go to our website, actually, you can go to Amazon.com, but you can also just go to our website, which is icudelirium.org, just icudelirium.org. And there's an every deep drawn breath page there, and it has links to multiple different ways to purchase the book. It's also available in audiobook um, and digital book. So however you want to get it. Now, another topic that's near and dear to your heart that you probably cover in the book is that in the ICU, we're not always going for a cure. At some point in life, where none of us gets out of this world alive, we're going to be dying. So can you tell our listeners some of the wisdom you've gleaned about that shift from cure to care um, in the ICU? Sure. Yeah. You know, one way the listener can envision this is at the beginning of the ICU, when someone comes in and is, is my patient, we're usually trying to fix things so that they can survive. And that's the reason to come to the ICU for things like life support in the way of mechanical ventilators or dialysis or treatment for shock. And we're climbing a ladder of cure then, right? But at some point in many of these patients' lives, and I would say in my ICU, one in three, uh, will not leave the hospital alive in a medical ICU. In surgical ICU, that survival rate's a little higher. But when one in three people are going to die before they leave the hospital, we better get very good at sh shifting that ladder from the wall of cure over to the wall of comfort and switching really into a palliative mode where we're actually acknowledging the reality of where this person is in their life, not ignoring that, but facing up to that. And Pope John Paul II, St. John JP II, talked about that in Evangelium Vitae, where he talked a lot about the, the facing the reality and the truth of where somebody is in the context of their own life, and, um, and then honestly addressing what their hopes and dreams are at that stage of their life. And, uh, you know, one way of thinking about it is you can imagine the spectrum of somebody's life at the very beginning at their birth, you could see a picture frame of them as a baby. And then at the end of their life, there's a picture frame of them, you know, in that dying process. Well, those two picture frames are the bookends of their life. And I am very present at the that latter bookend of someone's life. And I want that to have the best 
picture possible there of an end of life experience for them to where they can saunter in to the whatever we believe is the afterlife or not, whatever someone's individual beliefs are, um, as peacefully and, and as absent suffering as possible. Man, that's naturally, though, in a natural process, rather than I would never do anything to intentionally cause that death, of course. Um, but but as they as they naturally pass in that process, I can influence the degree of comfort and peacefulness they have by using palliative care. Well, and you bring up a, a sobering statistic about one in three people passing away in the ICU. And that that kind of reveals the the scariness that everybody feels when they talk about ICU and ICU experiences, you relate how you got a personal experience with fear and the ICU when your daughter, I believe, had to go to the ICU before. Tell yeah. us about that and, and what, what you learned from the, the patient parent side of things. Well, one day we were at the pool and there was a 15 foot high diving board and it's still hard for me to talk about it, but my six-year-old daughter went up to that diving board and fell off head first and hit the cement, did not land in the water. And it was just a brutal experience. Uh, She fell in the water. She was seizing. This is, I think, chapter five or six in the book. And when that happened and she was in the neuro ICU, um, in the book, I tell the story of how I was not on the right side of the bed where I normally am as a physician, where we examine patients to the right. I was on the left side of the bed and that opened up my eyes to so much, Andrew, about what it meant to my patients and their loved ones and their families and what I needed to do as in the healing art of being a physician for them. And it changed forever my perspective of the kind of doctor that I wanted to be, basically because the experience of being on that left side of the bed left me wanting and left me realizing that I probably did some of the same things that those neurosurgeons did to us, not intentionally, but leaving them with absent information, not enough time, and not enough of really just the human touch. The technology became the driver, and what I, what I was missing was that, that human touch side of those good doctors. So what did you do differently after that with your own patients? Well, what I really did differently was that I realized when I went back in the ICU that with their eyes shut in a sedated coma, I can't see them. They become depersonalized to me and to everyone else, the nurses and the whole team. And so that set me on a direct path, a straight line path to do investigations that proved that if I would wake people up with a protocol that we could save lives and reduce time on life support and in the ICU. And that began the ABCs, the awakening breathing coordination. That was what we called it. And that went from that to the D, the delirium, and then E, early mobility, and then F, family. The final step of the A2F bundle was adding that family back in. And that's how we constructed the A2F bundle, which is now the protocol utilized all over the world, which is now translated into 30 languages, 40 languages, and and used in thousands and thousands of hospitals. But sadly, with COVID, was just undone 20 years of work in a matter of weeks because people were scared. They didn't no longer no longer had the family at the bedside and they no longer kept the patients awake. They deeply sedated them with benzos again. I mean, I literally felt like I was back in the 1990s when I was up in the COVID units. And, and it's now time to rebuild and move back to where we were in 2019 prior to COVID uh, with all the things we've learned from the pandemic. This is incredibly motivational. And some of our best listeners are students, often medical students. What kind of medical student should consider going in to critical care medicine? A medical student would want to go into critical care medicine, I think, if they really want to care for the entire person at the time of the throes of their life where it's, it's a, as we said earlier, this is for all the marbles. It may come out in survival, but it just as easily may come out in death. And that if there is a dying process that is going to happen in that ICU, that your job is not over, it's just getting started. That you then want to dive deep down in to the chaos of that person's life as they're going through that dying process and bring to it all of the truth and beauty of that phase of that person's life and not consider that your life is done just because the life support didn't uh, didn't work, so to speak. 
And you know, Wes, one of the things on, on this show, we have a lot of listeners who are totally unrelated to the medical profession. And they're just interested because we all are concerned about our health and those that we love, their health as well. If I'm if I'm a, a listener, I want to go to your ICU. And if, if I don't <laughs> need it in Nashville, what can I do as a patient or a family member to improve the care of my loved one while they're in the ICU? Well, I love that you asked that question because I actually am just writing a piece right now that's called Notes on Your Next ICU Stay. Oh. And give advice to families about exactly that. Because when that person in your life or you landed in ICU, you have to know how to advocate for yourself. And so that bundle I told you about, the A2F bundle, is something that you should be a part of every single day in that ICU with your loved one. And, and in this piece, I'm telling the person, here are the questions to ask. Here You need to ask, you know, the A is analgesia is my loved one's pain controlled and how are you doing it? And if it is controlled, are you now stopping the drug though? Because too much pain medicine isn't good either. Um, when we get down to removing the ventilator and sed sedatives, you know, have we stopped their drugs today? Have we let them try to wake up? Because if you don't let them wake up, they're just getting potential extra drug that's gonna pummel their brain into delirium. Um, what choice of drugs to see? What choice of drugs are you using here? Well, are we on benzodiazepines? Because I don't really don't want my loved one on a benzodiazepine if they can be on something short acting that's not going to hurt their brain so much. What about delirium? Do they have delirium today? Have you checked for that? And if so, if they are delirious, can we run through the Dr. Dre? The Dr. Dre is the DDRE, which is, you know, he's a famous rapper. So we made up this mnemonic and it's diseases, <laughs> drug removal and environment. And if we thought of what diseases are causing the delirium, have we removed drugs that are deliriogenic? And what's the environment like today? Have we given them their eyeglasses, their hearing aids? Is the lighting set up so that it's dark at night and they can sleep and light during the day so they get their diurnal cycles appropriated? Um, and then E is early mobility. Have they been out of the bed today? We've got to get them out of the bed and moving because that's getting back to the land of the living. And it makes them feel like a person again. And then F, family, tell me what's going on. I want to be on rounds with you. Let me listen in. So. These are some things that you can advocate for your loved one. And I guarantee you, if you do it politely and you're in a good ICU, they want you to be a part of this. Wes, that was a tremendous interview. If you like this, you'll like the book too. Please go out, get the book, support the work of Wes and his patients. God bless you. Thanks for being with Dr. Doctor again, Wes. My privilege. Thank you for having me. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Today's category, how many beds? So I asked in the community hospitals in the country, over 5,000 of them, how many intensive care unit beds are there? And after being through COVID, you'd think we'd know that, but I had to look it up. I found it. It's 107,000 ICU beds right now in the United States. And what percent of the total beds are ICU beds? 13.6% or roughly one in seven. So there's almost 800,000 hospital beds in American community hospitals, not counting the federal hospitals or psychiatric hospitals. Any of those surprise you, Andrew? You know, I thought it would be higher, but this kind of indicates why everybody was so worried about the, the surge when COVID started, you know, only 100,000 beds for 300 million people. Yeah, that's not a lot, but that's a, it's an interesting data point, Tom, and I appreciate being familiar with it. And what are your top three takeaways from Wes's interview about deep, every deep drawn breath? Man, I really love that guy. I could talk to him all day. Number one, I would say, is personhood. Everything that we talked about, you can see his faith radiating in trying to bring personhood back to every encounter. And he talked about the A2F. We're going we're gonna to get a link to his website where people can review that. But not only as clinicians, but also as patients, familiarizing ourselves with that. Because kind of my second data point or takeaway would be that we all want and deserve something better for ICU care. Wes is really a leader on this. And I think it's important that we all are aware of it and to the extent that we can to help facilitate that because we're all going to be most of us statistically in the ICU at some time, and we want something better. And for those who, who want to learn more about that, I'd recommend as point number three, get the book. I've, I've been privileged to read a little bit of it already, and uh, I really like it. I'm excited to finish it, and I think people are going to enjoy it in and outside of medicine. 
Yeah, you don't have to be a medical expert to understand what's in the book. Uh, he's written it at an appropriate level for anyone to enjoy it, especially since it revolves around so many stories. And we know people love stories. Oh, man. I Well, those are the things that really drew me in. And you'd think that this shouldn't be something like he, he brought up the, the story about the prisoner that struck me. This shouldn't be something outlandish or uncommon. But unfortunately, it is. And it just really highlights the direction we should go with ICU medicine. So if you're at all interested in learning about this, or maybe it'd be a gift for somebody else, the book is going to go toward research to making the ICU a more welcoming place where, as Wes said, the doctors will see all of you. I will see all of you. I just uh, love the corny mnemonics because they often work. Oh, yeah. That's how you remember stuff. And so hopefully you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, you should think about coming to the annual conference. See you October 7th to 9th, Orlando, Florida. But if not, we still thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And please be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. You can find all of our old episodes. We've gone over a lot of stuff at drdoctor.org. If you're looking for something and you don't see it there, let us know and we'll do an episode on it. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.